Welcome to Finding Proof, where we discuss all things early stage VC. We're your hosts, Thanasis and Jenny of the Proof Fund, and our goal is to get to know the best seed and early stage VCs out there. In this episode, we spend some time getting to know Jim Cohen and Mark Pogue of Fitzgate Ventures, which is an early stage network-driven venture capital firm based out of Houston, Texas, that is focused on investing in companies that have a connection to the Princeton University tech ecosystem. Mark and Jim, thank you for joining us today. I think it's appropriate to start asking you about the fund. So we both share the same alma mater, which is, I wouldn't have mentioned, but it's core to what you guys do. So I wanted to ask you about the fund, how you guys started it together and the strategy. Jim and I founded Fitzgate Ventures back in 2015. We're both proud Princeton University alums. And as you said, the Nassus, you and I are classmates from Princeton. And we'd had varied backgrounds and careers we can talk about later, but Jim had this idea to found a fund focused on our alma mater. And in that way, we could sort of combine our vocation and our avocation. So Fitzgate is, we like to say it's a network-driven fund, early stage venture capital fund with a specific but not exclusive focus on the Princeton University ecosystem. So what that means is that we primarily invest in companies that have some kind of nexus to Princeton University. So I have a founder or senior team member or board member or close advisor who is a Princeton alum or professor. And so we are now on fund two. We started investing out of fund one in 2016 and then raised fund two and then started investing out of that in 2019. And so we're right in the middle of investing out of fund two in, in these companies, most of which have that Princeton nexus, some of which do not. And the thesis behind that is that basically Princeton has a powerful network, right? And there's been some other funds that go after alums of Harvard and Stanford and other affinity-centric funds, I would say. And so is that what motivated you to start? This is Jim. Yeah, absolutely. It's a network effect that we are bringing to bear to help our companies and to help us. You know, it obviously is also a pretty good filter, although that really wasn't the primary reason to do it. And so if you look at our website, for example, we have a few hundred alumni, faculty, and administrators that are connected to Princeton. Most of them are venture capitalists like us, or they are founders, successful founders. And so this network, because we are vertical agnostic, we are, if you look at our 19 current portfolio companies, we're in virtually every vertical, all the way from quantum computing to a couple of direct-to-consumer brands. And we leverage this network to help not only us as we diligence these different opportunities, but more importantly, to help our founders. Once we've invested, we say to our founders, who do you want to meet? Usually it's for business development purposes or for fundraising purposes, but the network is incredibly powerful. I think there are certain schools where it's more powerful than others. Princeton is one that we're obviously very familiar with, but if you think of other institutions off the top of my head, I would say places like A&M or Notre Dame, where there are alumni networks that are really super connected. And that was what really drove us. And it's been incredibly useful. I mean, we have probably hundreds of stories of opportunities that we vetted through this network, this Princeton network. And the thing that's really interesting about it is these folks are unpaid. Some are investors, but most are not. And they're doing it to sort of pay it forward, but also for the experiential benefits. I think people like being exposed to venture. So that's mostly what drove it. Definitely. And how did you guys first get your start in venture? 
So this, Mark, I'll give you a little bit of my background. So I had founded a company back in 2000, a software company, right about two months before the first dot-com bubble burst. So great timing. But we persevered and built the company up a little bit and sold it to another one. And I ended up working for that other company for 13 years in a variety of roles. Ended up as the head of product, the head of marketing, the head of business development and board secretary. And in, in that ride, so starting a company from scratch and growing it and selling it and then working for a company that grew from a small tech company into a much larger one with 300 employees and in six different countries, I saw what worked and what didn't work. And so that sort of operational background, I was thinking after we sold the company, what did I want to do next? And I thought that it might be fun to work in venture capital. We've been a recipient of venture capital, my company, but I thought it might be fun to sort of bring that operational background and experience to multiple companies versus just one. And so when Jim had this idea of focusing on the Princeton University ecosystem, which I've been very involved with over the years, I jumped at the opportunity. Right. Can understand why. And what about you, Jim? Thanks, Jennifer. Yeah, it's a great question. We're always asked by, you know, we teach a class at Rice for the MBA students on venture capital. We also teach the seminar at Princeton and people are always coming to us and saying, how do we get into venture? And Mark and I have kind of a unique answer. Well, we formed our own fund, <laughs> but we both came at it from different perspectives. So when I got out of college, there just weren't as many opportunities. So I did sort of a standard thing where I went and worked at Morgan Stanley as a financial analyst. Then I practiced law doing fund formation for a number of years at a firm in New York and in London, helping to set up the very earliest private equity funds like Blackstone and KKR and a few venture funds. And then I started working in private equity. And that was just very similar to what we do now, but much later stage focused. And then I ended up working at a public company running their M&A. And so obviously I was making investing decisions there, but again, it was companies that had not only revenue, but also earnings. So my company, the public company where I was running m and I sort of emanated myself out of a job around the same time <laughs> that Mark sold the software company. And I thought, okay, what, what is the most interesting thing you could do? Private equity is interesting, but I think venture capital is way more interesting, going really early in the life cycle. Now, it's much higher risk, so it was something that I wasn't really able to do earlier in my career to take the kind of risk, because we have a lot of our own capital in the fund, too. But I thought, what is the most interesting part of the sort of investment life cycle? Certainly, venture is compelling, early stage in particular, because we're creating jobs, and unlike PE, we're putting 100% equity to work. right? And so something you can feel really good about. And the other thing is because we're vertical agnostic, every day, Mark and I are having Zoom calls, talking to really interesting founders in all different industries. And so that's really how I came about it. And I was really lucky that Mark was sort of available at the time because he's got the background as a founder, which I don't have. And I had sort of a later stage investing background. Yeah. Yeah. And on that note, Mark, what do you personally love the most about venture capital and the ability to fund fellow Princeton alumni? Really, just leveraging off what Jim said, I mean, the getting to meet all the different entrepreneurs who are all mostly very passionate about what they're doing. They have backgrounds and in industries that I have never learned about before. And so I've always enjoyed learning and getting to learn on a daily basis as part of my job is really probably the most fun for me, as well as getting to work with all these very passionate people who are really engaged and really believe in what they're doing. The other thing we're doing, which I think is a little different, is that because we have this sort of 
network-focused initiative. We try to be helpful. Obviously, like most VCs, we want to have a huge top of the funnel. And Mm -hmm. so we look at thousands of companies and we probably invest in maybe 2% of what we do. But because we have this common bond with most of the people that we are being pitched by, we try to help them anyway. And that's part of our sort of our own pay it forward mantra. So where we don't invest, we still try to be helpful to these founders to say, look, how can we be helpful to you? This isn't appropriate for X, Y, or Z reasons. A lot of times it's maybe too late for us, Mm -hmm. or maybe it's even too early for us, but we try to be helpful by connecting them to other people in the network who can be helpful to them, even where we're not investing. And that feels good too, just to do that as well. Yeah, that goes a long way. I'm sure they're very appreciative of that for sure. And it's interesting, right? Because you have an affinity centric strategy. I mean, you have something in common with a lot of the founders because sometimes you need to get to know the founders, but when you have something common, it's probably easier just to develop a relationship. So in that vein, can you give us maybe an example of a portfolio company, how you guys met them and why you were excited and then how you helped them leveraging this network? Well, I'll start. And this is a very Princeton kind of story and it's unusual. It's a one-off for us. But when, when uh, student, high school students apply to Princeton, they're all... all in most regions are given an interview by a local alumni alum. And I do that and Jim does that and and lots of other alumni do that as well and around the world. And so I usually interview for between four and eight students, high school students per year. Used to be the head of the schools committee here in Texas. But anyway, and one year, I guess 10 years ago or so, I interviewed a student here and really liked him. He ended up getting, he wrote a good report. He ended up getting into Princeton, not because of anything I did, but because of his He's a great student. And then I stayed in touch with him just because I thought he was an interesting kid. And he did very well at Princeton. And then and as he grad, was graduating, he started asking me questions about entrepreneurship. And then it, lo and behold, he ended up starting a company while he's at Princeton with one of his professors in the biochemistry uh, department there. And it was too early, of course, when he started talking to us about it. But then he ended up growing the company and going through a dramatic growth cycle. Uh, and, and the name of the company is Cheers Health. At the time, it was called Thrive. And it's focused on providing supplements for, it's called an after alcohol aid, sort of nutraceutical type supplements to help people metabolize alcohol and improve liver health. So anyway, long story short. Very college appropriate. (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, it does sound like a lot of the college startups we hear about are about food delivery or something to do with alcohol. So it does fit within that. that Good target market. Yeah. Right. Anyway, we were resistant to the company a little bit for that reason and others, but he just had explosive growth. And we ended up, long story short, he, it was too compelling of an opportunity for us to pass up. And so we didn't. So we invested in it about two years ago and it's done phenomenally well. Yeah. Great uh, I think one of the things that's interesting is that when you think about opportunity, sometimes people think you're a seed investor. Most of what we do is seed stage that you invest instantly. But the truth is, if you look at most of our companies, we probably have a dialogue with them for over a year before we invest. You know, we track them to make sure that they're hitting the milestones that they have set out. I guess I would give two other examples, I guess, to answer that same question. And also, I think Brooks, that's the founder Mark was referring to, is really an exception. I mean, he's really a phenomenal founder. But most of the founders we've backed are alumni that are probably more in the 40 plus year age range, which is typical for founder startup folks. So there was one that our quantum computing deal, I think is a great example too, where the founder of QCI, it's called, was running the Yale Quantum Institute. He was a Princeton undergrad, coincidentally in my class. I knew him. We were 
weren't super close, but we were friendly. I had no idea that he was a genius uh, at the time, like most people you were around. <laughs> you know, years later, uh, we had just formed the fund. One of my best friends who uh, was friends with this founder said, hey, you know, Rob's looking to potentially spin out of Yale with some other professors. He's a, a leading light in quantum. Long story short, we quickly got up the curve. We used the Princeton network in a couple of ways. One is no surprise, I guess we're not quantum experts, right? We quickly found out that Rob was probably one of the top three quantum scientists in the world. And we found that out largely because we tapped into the Princeton Computer Science Faculty Network, which is something we couldn't have done. So we have uh, one of our friends of FITS, we call them, is the chair of the computer science department at Princeton. And she said, look, even I'm not a quantum expert, but here are the three faculty members who are. And they helped us evaluate the opportunity, again, just because. And it turned out that one of them was a postdoc in our founder's lab. So it was like, yeah, you know, we wish he were at Princeton, he's at Yale, whatever. It was sort of the best diligence we could do. So we were the first and only institutional investor in their seed round. And so that was one way we used the Princeton network, obviously using the Princeton faculty in that particular case. But then ultimately within seven months, it became very clear that they needed to raise more money than we invested a relatively small check. Right now, our, I don't think we said that our average check size here is a minimum of 500K. And we don't usually invest in things that are as capital intensive as a quantum computing startup. But in this case, obviously the exit is way outsized. So what we did is again, through the Princeton network, we essentially connected some dots for them that got them to Sequoia, Canaan and Tribeca that led an $18 million series A. And so we just have lots of stories like that, but that's kind of a unique one because it, it helped us on the going inside of it in terms of our own diligence, which cannot be underestimated. And then it also helped us help them almost instantly once we invested. Right. And are there certain themes that you guys are, are particularly really excited about right now? If you look at our portfolio, I think I said earlier, we have 19 current companies. It sort of just worked itself out that every one of them is in a different vertical. So, I mean, we are excited about all our children, of course. Uh, <laughs> uh, but I mean, we don't have a double bottom line approach like a lot of funds, but we also have invested in social impact deals too, just mm -hmm. because they make sense. We've got a company called Pledgeling that is basically now is the charitable giving partner of Zoom. And we just invested in a company called Mr. Fusion, which is, takes its name from the Back to the Future movie, which is kind of amazing. And they yeah. are, were able to do that. But that company is a green energy company. That's basically, um, they're taking garbage and converting it into electricity. That's our most recent deal. So we're excited about that. But we're also excited about it because it became very clear that you could do something good like that, but it's very much investment focused. It's return focused, return driven, while also doing something that, I think that's the cool thing about a lot of these sectors, like even the, if you look at Pledgeling or you look at green energy, I mean, these are things where they're not signaling anymore. They're actually making money because they're doing good. So we're happy to participate in those kinds of opportunities too. And being that you are so broad, you obviously want to leverage other experts, right? To, as you said, due diligence. So talk to us a little bit about how easy it is to kind of build a network using the Princeton connection where people, so in your example, when you mentioned the head of the computer science department of Princeton, were they easily persuaded to be helpful? And what was the motivation? Talk to us a little bit about how you built your network. When we first started, we didn't have, really have the intent of doing that. We had a traditional advisory board and the people we went to was, for example, Ed Shao, who was the first faculty member to ever teach venture at Princeton. And then someone like, Dennis Keller, who donated the computer center and people like that. But then as we talked to alumni, they kept saying, this is so cool. How do we get involved? 
And then one of our other friends at Fit said, instead of doing this traditional advisory board, why don't you just make it more informal? And so we did. And I guess all I would say is it, it wasn't easy because it's taken us five years. You know, I think now we are, have an incredible network. And the way we built it was by having 10 Zoom calls a day, or well, actually it was pre-Zoom. We were actually seeing people in person. It's hard to remember that. Um, <laughs> we actually went and saw people. And you know what? It was really easy. People say, well, what is a friend of fits? And we said, well, it's whatever you want to make it. There's no commitment. You're not paid. You don't have to invest. It's whatever you want it to be. You know, We'll keep you apprised. We might call you to ask your advice, but we might not call you until we have a relevant opportunity. So in the case of somebody like faculty members, they just think it's cool. And I think they want to see some of the deal flow. And so I would say very easy. I don't know if you agree with that, Mark. Yeah, I absolutely do. And that's the thing about the, the Princeton Network and other networks like this is that usually when we send an email or one of our founders sends an email, even a blind email to a fellow alum that they or professor, they'll get a response. And so we can usually get a phone call with almost anyone we, we want to talk to. And we're fortunate in that a lot of times they're, they're well-placed both academically, but also within industry. And so we've got lots of other stories about a guy who's a chief scientist of DARPA, who we had actually initially approached about potentially investing in our fund. And he said, well, I've got five kids and three of them are in college right now. So I'm not a good candidate to invest in your fund, but I'd love to be a friend of FITS. And, and we've actually called on him several times for some sort of deep tech government oriented investments that we've looked at. So being the black sheep here and not having gone to Princeton for undergrad, I'm going to ask the three of you, and especially Mark and Jim, since you guys not only both went to Princeton, but you fund Princeton alumni, and it sounds like you're pretty active in the admissions process. What are the characteristics of an ideal Princeton student? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that, go ahead, Mark. Mark, Mark Mark's got I almost, a I, I, almost, so I'll, I'll... I almost gave a flippant response. You're looking at them, but no. <laughs> uh, but uh, no, I mean, you You're know. You're kidding? None of us, hey, wait, first of all, Mark, none of us would get in today. Let's be honest. Well, absolutely, uh, <laughs> absolutely not. <laughs> yeah, I think the NASA's may be the only one, but. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, it's certainly gotten more rigorous over time since all of us went there. So Princeton's always looking for students who have a lot of academic curiosity and have obviously done well, both academically and extracurricularly in their high school environment, but are really focused on learning and enjoy the act and practice of learning and have that sort of intellectual curiosity that's going to let them do well in college and after college. Well, I would just add to that one of the things that I think was that is unique about Princeton is not only that piece of it, but I think the other half of the equation, which is supposedly equally weighted is, are they passionate about something else? You know, do they have an extracurricular interest that is really moving them? And that's the one thing that I've noticed about Princeton students is that when they're on campus, they're obviously good students, but they all have something that they're interested in, whether it's theater or acapella or building computers or playing piano, whatever it may be, there's something they're passionate about or sport. And so I think that's what's kind of interesting about it. It's not unique to Princeton, but it's something that I think they value highly. And so when you meet somebody on campus today, I think it's very likely that they're going to be talking to you about something that has nothing to do with academics, but has something to do with their outside interests. And the other thing that's different from the student body today that's really, I think, awesome and impressive that Princeton's doing is, I want to say like 20 to 25% of the accepted students today are first generation low income students. And so they've made a big push there because Princeton's got such a large endowment to make it possible for anybody to go to Princeton today. So that's pretty cool. 
Right. And translating that to your role as investors, are there certain qualities that you look for in founders? That passion that probably was one of the reasons I got into Princeton in the first place that carries over into their startup that they've got going. I mm-hmm. think that's really important. Someone who comes from an industry where they've experienced firsthand the problem that they're attempting to solve, that permits them to number one, understand the industry, but number two, they wouldn't have started a company if they weren't passionate about that particular problem they're solving. They're not mercenaries, but they're missionaries, as we talk about in our classes. Jim, what else would you say? No, I think that's, that's a great point. I think that, you know, like when I graduated, Microsoft was just going public. There weren't startups to go work at. And today, one of the negatives of the entrepreneurial curriculums that's, I think, a huge advantage at every school is that you might have people starting companies that maybe shouldn't. Maybe they should go get some experience first. That's why, like when we say the average age of a successful founder is in their 40s or so, that's no coincidence, right? You have to kind of know some basic stuff generally. I mean, not everyone can be a Zuckerberg, you know, you need to know like what's an NDA, you know, have you ever even looked at one before? I mean, there are exceptions to that, but I think that that's important to think about. One question I had was around the whole entrepreneurship trend. And when I went to school, there were, you know, I took finance but that was probably the only kind of close to business course that you could get in the economics department. And now I think Princeton has something like six courses on entrepreneurship. And I think one third of the students take at least one of those. Have you seen that affect the propensity of students to start businesses out of Princeton? And how is that different than say for a school like Stanford, which is in the middle of Silicon Valley? All-star gem. So we were also, our timing and starting Fitzgate was somewhat fortunate in that the president of the university, his name is Chris Eisgruber, he had commissioned the board of directors to come up with a plan to imbue entrepreneurship both on and off campus amongst the Princeton community. And he'd done that in 2014. And they actually issued their report in 2015, about almost exactly the same time that Jim and I were starting Fitzgate. And they came back with a very concrete set of 12 or 15 points in areas of focus the university should take to imbue more entrepreneurship both on and off campus. Things like starting an entrepreneurship hub, hiring more entrepreneurship professors, hiring more computer science professors, creating wet lab space for biology and and chemistry entrepreneurs, and, and lots of other things like that. And the university almost immediately implemented all those. And so that has translated into, as you said, a significant increase in the number of courses and the number of students' interest in entrepreneurship. It is when students fill out not just our applications, but their sort of areas of interest once they are admitted, a very significant number of them say that they're interested in entrepreneurship. And again, that translates into, as you said, more than half of the graduating senior class has taken at least one class in entrepreneurship. And computer science is now the number one major at Princeton, which is, as we all talked about, like a total 180 degree about face versus 20 years ago, even. So that's also translated into more student startups coming off the campus, which we don't invest in very many of those. We don't want to be, as as Jim likes to say, the invest in the first pancake. We want to invest in their second or third startup. One thing I'd add to that is that in addition to, I think there are like 16 classes, to be honest, at Princeton Entrepreneurship, it was important that they sort of turbocharge the environment, not just for students, because students don't want to go to a school where they can't study entrepreneurship, but also for the faculty. So to answer your earlier question, Thanasis, about how easy was it to get the faculty interested in what we're doing, super easy, because most of them today, especially the newer ones, 
are working on startups themselves. And technically, I think they're allowed one day a week to do whatever they want. And so I think it was really important for recruiting, not just students, but also for faculty. The one thing though, you know, we're always saying how great Princeton is. Of course, it's a great school, but I would say that it's deficient in a couple of ways. And when you think about the curriculum, I might as well throw this in there in case Chris Eisgruber listens to this, which of course there's, I don't know, maybe there's a chance to listen. <laughs> so one of the things interesting about these liberal arts colleges is that probably kicking and screaming, they agreed to begin this entrepreneurial enterprise, right? Because they have to. It's a matter of supply and demand. The, the one area where some of these liberal arts schools is deficient is in things like accounting. Like at Princeton, I don't think you can take an accounting class, which is unheard of. When I was there, they taught it maybe every other year. And the faculty member who taught it was the only guy who taught it in that sort of capacity. And he passed away a few years ago. Uwe Reinhardt, who was a, a legend at the school. I took his class. <laughs> okay, there you go. And it's kind of a shame. Like if you're going to teach entrepreneurship, it's not so pedestrian to teach accounting. People need to know what is a Like if you're raising money, you need to know what a balance sheet is. So anyway, I'm going to get off my soapbox. But uh, <laughs> I want to try and be objective about the Princeton experience. It's not perfect. They need to teach some accounting and some basic things like that. And eventually they'll get there. I think, you know, not to digress, but like Mark mentioned, I think we, we teach this class at Rice at the Jones School, which has done something very similar to Princeton in, in developing out their entrepreneurship program. And it's, I think, the number one entrepreneurship program in the country, actually, not to get Princeton upset. But they did just announce two weeks ago that they now are starting a finance major for undergrads, which you know is something hard to fathom that Princeton would ever do that. But I think that's been a huge trend over the last couple of decades at most universities. I'm not suggesting Princeton should do that, but I think if you're really going to teach entrepreneurship, you need to layer in some classes on basic finance too. So moving into our four standard question segment, this is a group of questions that we ask all of our guests, and we're looking forward to hearing your answers. Number one is our National Venture Capital Association question. So the MVCA advocates for public policy that supports the venture community and the American entrepreneurial ecosystem. If there is one thing that you'd change about the VC industry or one policy that you'd advocate for, what would it be? I would say democratize the investor side of it a little bit, because that's one of the things I think we were, we loved about what we were doing is that we were reaching out to high net worth individuals, family offices, and people who traditionally, for a first fund, right, a smaller first fund, you're not going to go to TIAA and get money, right? So we were reaching out to folks who absolutely had the financial wherewithal as accredited investors to invest and probably should invest in this asset class but have no opportunity mm -hmm. to do so. As you all know, I mean, most of the investors in venture are institutions. And so high net worth individuals are left and family offices are left with public equities. And we all know about that. Or you could get one basis point from JP Morgan Chase. And so where else do you put your money? If you have enough, if your net worth is a, a sufficient size, then one could make a really uh, cogent argument that five to 10% should be in alternative assets. And that doesn't just mean real estate. So I feel like there should be a way to make venture as a class more available to the individual investor. I'm not talking about crowdfunding and that kind of thing. I'm talking about sophisticated, high net worth folks who just can't get into these kinds of deals because it makes sense to diversify. So I guess that would be my input there. Yeah, I would agree with that totally. One of our portfolio companies, and they haven't done it yet, so I probably won't say which one, is exploring doing a reg CF crowdfunding offering. 
and raising several million dollars using that. So that, I mean, there had been some advances, regulatory advances, and of course, the JOBS Act. But assuming this Reg CF offering works, as we think it will, I think more of that would be better and more democratization in a sane way of investment in startups and, and venture capital. Yeah, definitely. Number two is if you were not a VC and money wasn't a concern, what career would you have? I mean, honestly, I'd probably just do the same thing just with my own money or start a company, probably start a company. I just think there's so much opportunity today to do that. And if you have unlimited resources, there's no excuse. So that's what I would do. I would say similarly, I mean, I I do tell people all the time that I feel like I've got the best job in the world. It's fun. And I look forward to it every day, all the conversations we get to have with entrepreneurs and others. I was asked this question sort of early in my career by the CEO of of the software company that bought mine. So back in 2003, I think he asked me, what would you do if we sell the company and you were able to walk away with enough money to do what you want, what would you do? And I told him at the time that I'd want to be a university professor. So I've, I've sort of partly achieved that with this rice sideline job that Jim and I do. But uh, yeah, I think that might be fun as well. So in a, a similar vein, you know, getting to learn and think all the time. Number three is who is someone that you look up to and why? Okay. Not to be like super obvious, but, uh, and actually it's probably not even a popular choice. It turns out he was a classmate of mine, but I didn't know him, uh, which is because he was doing big things. But I mean, it's hard not to admire what Bezos has built. I mean, it's not only because I get five Amazon packages a day at my house. He's really (laughs) (laughs) changed. I mean, particularly during the pandemic, getting groceries. I mean, I didn't even think the whole foods thing made sense. And then all of a sudden you're getting groceries delivered during the pandemic. And so to build the kind of infrastructure and backbone and monolithic enterprise, I mean, obviously it's not all positive. There's a lot of negative press, clearly. But to be able to build that in your own lifetime is just phenomenal. And so I can't help but admire him. So I I think that's an incredible accomplishment. I've got a couple answers. I'm going to cheat, get a couple answers to that question. One is I've always been a very big sports fan and and my sport of choice was basketball. And so I always, I mean, he's a very flawed individual, maybe kind of like Jeff Bezos, but even more so, but I always admired sort of the competitiveness and passion of Michael Jordan. And it's something that I I love to see sort of a spark of that in others, especially entrepreneurs as they're starting their companies. And then the other, I guess. Did you see the the Netflix movie? Obviously, I'm just the, the, the last, I'm forgetting yeah, the, the name last of it. Dance. Yeah, the yeah, last dance. Yeah, the last dance. Yeah, great, it's yeah. great. Loved it. Brought back a lot of great memories. And I guess the other person I'd say I admire would be, and again, I guess it is kind of obvious, as people have exhibited courage, standing up in the face of adversity, and taking positions even when it wasn't in their own personal interests, which I feel like. Not to get on a soapbox is something we're probably lacking in society today. And so I'd love to see more of it. And I was a history major in college. And so I love to read about the founding fathers of the United States or more modern, you know, Martin Luther King or someone like that. Or I wrote a, my junior paper about a woman named Ida B. Wells, who was one of the uh, foremost writers and journalists against racist practices in the U.S. South back, especially in the early 20th century. Basically, she did a statistical analysis of lynchings and it's sort of a dark topic, but it, she suffered quite a bit for the position she took. She could have had a much easier and more lucrative life doing something else. And so I admire that. And then just personally, my grandfather, when I was growing up, he was a family physician in the U.S. South, where I grew up in Memphis, Tennessee. 
And most doctors at the time wouldn't see black families and certainly wouldn't do house calls at, at black households. And he did. And that was a big part of his practice. And he never made a big deal about it. He never even talked about it. Like I never even heard it from him. I heard it from my mother years later that he did that. And I guess one impact he had on besides hopefully good health of those families and those children was he just personally hated watermelon. And so he would always tell people, including me, his grandkids, he would say, you know, don't, don't eat watermelon. If you're sick, just cut out all watermelon and you'll start feeling better. And so, <laughs> so he, he, he told me, so there's a whole generation of people growing up in Memphis, Tennessee, who heard him say that and don't like watermelon to this day. That's hilarious. Number four is what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? I actually didn't receive this advice, but I, uh, I give it, I give it all the time really only in the last maybe 10 years or so, especially to my children who are now mostly fully functioning adults. And that is, I'm, not, I'm no Steve Jobs fanboy. I like the keyword mostly. <laughs> <laughs> I'm mostly functional too. Um, no, but I, uh, I'm not a Steve Jobs fanboy by any means, but there was a quote that is attributed to him along the lines of, if you're ever nervous about something or you're worried about doing something, just remember that one day you'll be dead, you know, and it just puts everything in perspective. I mean, really, I mean, it, I mean it's not where I thought I was going to go. No, I mean, it's totally true. I mean, if you just think about your true. own mortality, then you got to think nothing really matters, right? So just go for it. I remember when my, my youngest son was trying to walk on to the college wrestling team and these guys were world-class recruited wrestlers when he had wrestled in high school, but by no means at their level. And I was really nervous about doing it. Clearly we really wanted to do it. And I gave him that advice. And I was like, just remember, like, if you're worried about it, it's wrestling, you know, one day you're not even going to be alive. Just go for it. And he did. And he parroted that back to me like a year later. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. I I that. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I think, I think it's powerful stuff to think about your own mortality. <laughs> wow. Okay. Uh, mine is not nearly that dark, but uh, <laughs> so I guess I learned one, one piece of advice I, I took to heart that my uh, dad gave me was learn on someone else's nickel. And so that also goes into our whole VC investing philosophy is that I get asked all the time by founders or would-be entrepreneurs saying, okay, I want to start a company. What should I do? How should I go about that? And I always tell them, if you can, what you should do is go work for a later stage startup or, or even a public company and learn about a particular industry that's interesting to you and what's required to build and run and manage a company and sort of learn on why you're getting paid by someone else, learn on their nickel. And then what you figured out, okay, there's some problem in this industry, I'll go solve that problem, then leave and start your company after you made some money and learned on someone else's nickel. That's great advice. So Jim and Mark, thank you very much for joining us today. We really appreciated your answers and learning more about Fitzgate Ventures. Thanks so much for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And follow us on Twitter at ProofVC or on our website at proof.vc. 